Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to walk us through this text here this morning. Um, this uh, text falls towards the end of the sermon series we've been doing. We're walking through the book of Philippians, and it's important for us, even as we begin to look at this text, that we see the context of what's going on here. What happens is Paul is imprisoned, and he's writing this letter that's being hand-delivered to this church in Philippi. And I really imagine the scene unfolding in, in a pretty powerful way where you have this person come walking up the street to the church gathering. There's all these little house church Christians gathered around. They're going, a letter from Paul, and they're all excited. Paul wrote us a letter. Paul writes letters all the time, but we're excited to get one just to ourselves. And it reminds me of a time, you know, back in high school when you get your, your, um, your yearbook, and it would come out, and you open up your yearbook, and what's the first thing you do? You go and find yourself in it because you're self-centered and you only care about yourself. And so you flip to the back, and I go, where's Seth Trout? All right, he appears in these four pictures, and you go to one, and it's mislabeled, and you're like, dang it, it's not me. And then you pick another one, and you're like, that is a terrible picture. I can't believe they put that of me in there. How dare they? I know I shouldn't have made fun of that person on the yearbook team. They wouldn't have put this picture on me. And I get, I'm getting punished for my actions now. Then you find your headshot. But you kind of go and you look for yourself. I imagine this happening where Paul brings this letter or the, the person brings this letter that Paul wrote. And someone goes, oh, Paul wrote us a letter. Is my name in it? And someone goes, yes, your name's in it, yes, your name's in it, and your names are in it, and you're not going to like it. That's not going to be a positive deal. And your name is Yodia and Sintiki, and you're waiting for your name to be read. You're like, oh, they told me my name's in the letter. What a great deal. I get to be in God's word. My name's recorded in history. And you get to verse 2. I entreat these women to just get along, please. (laughs) And I just imagine the shock of Paul somewhere else concerned about this church, and the first thing he thinks about is these two ladies just need to play nice. What's their deal? And you get remembered forever as the combative partners in the gospel. And it just feels like a big letdown to me. You know, you get, Paul writes your name and you get left in the scripture. You imagine meeting these ladies in heaven and saying like, hey, are you guys getting along yet? Or how did that play out? Like, did it work? Did it go? But just, I just, there's kind of like a real serious moment there where, you know, if I was going to get up here and call out two of you by name, like, hey, you two get along, you two get along, that'd be Pretty, pretty serious here. And so some people even think that one of the reasons Paul wrote this letter was he had these two women who he loved, who were partners in the gospel with him, who were making a difference in the kingdom of God, and he hears about them bickering, and he's going, this church is doing pretty well, but I need to write, and I'm just going to kind of write this long letter and just get these women to agree, and it's going to be a good deal for everybody. But I, it's not surprising, though, that under the circumstances of what's going on in Philippi, that there's people getting along. I think we've all experienced this type of deal where when we're under stress, when we're agitated, when there's certain future difficulty upon us, we get reactive and fidgety and we get bitey and we get critical and we butt heads with people we love. And, and so that's, we don't know exactly. I think this is part of God's grace in this. We don't know what these two women weren't fighting about. But I think we can understand that Paul for the last couple of chapters has been talking about, hey, I'm in prison for doing what I'm calling you to do. Hey, I know the gift of faith is good, but did you know that it comes with suffering? Hey, stuff's gonna come and it's gonna not be super easy. Do all things without complaining. He says, I'm genuinely concerned for your welfare. And you imagine living in this kind of semi-contentious external force where the heat gets turned up, you know, crime rates go up when it gets hot and the relational agitation starts to happen. And that's kind of how I picture what's going on here with these two ladies, that they were fellow workers, partners in the gospel. Their names are in the book of life. And Paul's saying, hey, your anxiety is causing you relational difficulty. 
your inability to be, so this word here in verse five, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That word reasonableness actually means flexibility or the capacity to roll with it. Things aren't going to plan. Can you roll with it? Can you be flexible? Do we have a plan to build this church? Do we have a plan to grow, uh, to be a part of God's growing kingdom? We have, a, we have an opportunity ahead of us to make a big dent in these group of non-Christian people, but yet infighting continuously is the enemy of the church. And so he writes this really to kind of address the coming deal. Like, and, and you can, this happens all the time when people bring you news and he's like, hey, I have an announcement, but you're gonna, you're gonna wanna sit down for this. Your heart rate jumps, your palms start sweating. You know, anxiety really is, this, is it's an embodied experience. It comes with having a body. There's this, this looking forward to this stuff. And Paul's chapter after chapter after chapter in this book of Philippians has been talking about, hey, you've been given faith and you've also been given the gift of suffering and here it comes. And Paul knows that to be anxious is to be human, to look forward to future pain and anticipate that pain is anxiety. And so we see that grief and fear and anxiety all kind of go hand in hand. Grief is the pain that comes with loss. Fear is the pain that comes from loss happening right now or about to happen, and anxiety is anticipated future loss. I look forward to the future, and I don't like it, and I'm anxious. Or I look forward to the future, and it's not going the way I want it to, and so I'm anxious. And so Paul's been telling them, hey, suffering's coming, and they, because they're not crazy people, are not liking that reality, and that's making them anxious. And so Paul writes this part to address their anxiety. My wife's been teaching swim lessons, or she did in June. They're over. Um, don't contact me about them if you're getting some lessons, but they're over. Um, and she's, she'd come back with these different stories of these two to six-year-olds in swim lessons and how um, they're, they would, some of them would be terrified of the water. And she remembered telling me about this one kid who had no anxiety in the water. And I thought, well, it sounds like a good thing. And she said, oh, no, that's not a good thing. This kid is actually developmentally delayed. He has no anxiety. He just kind of walks up to the edge, falls right in, Sinks to the bottom, looks up. There's no like feeling of needing to get to the surface. There's no, what if I run out of oxygen? There's no, I need to stay on top. It's just sink and look. And then you're going, okay. Like it, it takes to some degree a healthy amount of anxiety of drowning to death to get you to, to go like this. And it's... It's kind of helped me rethink some of what anxiety functions and how it functions in our present fallen world is that anxiety, I think, is a grace and actually a good thing. It's sane. It looks forward with sobriety to future reality and calls it what it is. That it sees the recognition that I must do something or else things will go bad. It, it's a call into action. And so Soren Kierkegaard said it like this. He said, um, he didn't say that. He said this. He said, every human must learn to be anxious in order that he might not perish. Whoever has learned to be anxious in the right way has learned the ultimate thing. And what I'm going to argue here today is that this idea of like learning to be anxious in the right way of receiving anxiety as a gift and not as a curse, that not escaping anxiety but actually using my anxiety is something that God's going to do and use. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here um, in this text. And so here's my big idea. It's that anxiety is a revelation a grace. That if you think about the dashboard of your car, and when the check engine light comes on, some of you just call your spouse, that's what I would do, but I'm not very good at cars, but the check engine light comes on, right? <laughs> it's telling you something, something, it, the check engine light isn't a thing in and of itself, but it points past itself to something else, right? The check engine light's on, I need to look under the hood. 
That when we have anxiety, it's actually a gift that God's giving us to tell us to look under the hood, to pay attention, something's going on there, and we can't just keep running from this. And so we're going to walk through this text, and I'm going to kind of do a little bit of looking at what Paul talks about in terms of anxiety. Um, I'm going to unpack, and then how I think he's calling us to deal with and use our anxiety rather than just suppress it and run from it. So let's pray, and then I'll dive into this text. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all of it. Um, I pray that you will help us see um, this Philippians 4 text in the context of your whole story. I pray for people in this room who have been suffering from debilitating anxiety. Their check engine light's just stuck on and they can't get it off. Um, God, we thank you for the gift of psychiatrists. We thank you for the gift of uh, therapists who can help us walk through those things. But God, I ask this morning that all of us, people who are non-anxious, people who are um, semi-anxious or debilitatingly anxious, that we'd hear from your word and we'd see the way that you're a good father who moves towards people when they're in fear. In the name of your son, I pray. Amen. Amen. So Paul says here in to I entreat you and Sintiki to agree in the Lord. I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So the fact that these women are bat- biting and battling each other, we're not totally sure what's going on. Um, it might be, it seems like Paul thinks it is a result of the anxiety of the coming future um, persecution. And so he's saying, please get along, please get along. He says, rejoice always. Again, I'll say rejoice. So praise the Lord. Let your reasonableness, your flexibility, ability be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is close. He's upon us. He's near. He's not far off. Do not be anxious about anything. So I first read this, do not be anxious about anything, and I hear it as a command. And I, many people I know would understand anxiety to be sin because they'd see this as a command. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. And say, if God says, do not be anxious, and then I am anxious, that equals sinfulness. But I think what's actually happening there is we're misunderstanding the heart and the tone of this text. That this is not Paul listing out anxiety as as a sin, but he's encouraging us to look differently. And what has helped me kind of understand and see this text in a broader context is actually Paul's other times that he talks about anxiety. It's important when we see an author use a word that we see and look at his broader understanding and use of that word. So here's a couple other uses of the word anxiety that Paul has. Here's one from 1 Corinthians 12. He says, God has composed the body, the body of Christ, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it that there may be no division in the body, that the members may have the same anxiety for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So here in this context, Paul is saying that it's a fundamentally good thing, that we be anxious for one another, that we be concerned for other people. So if I was in college and I was with some skeptical people, they would say, Paul's clearly stupid. He contradicts himself over the place. (laughs) Paul says, don't be anxious. He says, it's a good thing that you're anxious, that you care for one another, that God gives us diversity of the gifts to the body, and they come together and they care. But what one of my uh, core beliefs when I'm reading scripture is that Paul is smarter than me and that he knows better what he's saying than I know what he's saying. And so rather than saying Paul's contradicting himself or even Paul's saying, obviously the church in Corinth is full of sin because they have anxiety for one another, I want to say maybe my initial reading of the first text is naive or too shallow, and so I want to look deeper. So the word, and the root word for anxiety here, even if you look it up in the Greek lexicon and all these different things, has to do with caring. Sometimes it has to do with caring too much. Sometimes it has to do with caring to the point in which it drives you a little bit crazy, but it all has to do with caring or concern or looking forward to. And so Paul says it's a good thing that you have anxiety for one another because that means that you're on each other's minds. 
that some of you are never anxious because you don't care about anybody but yourself. Paul texts us more in 1 Corinthians 7. He says this, to the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. This is Paul elevating singleness, saying, All, I know a lot of you want to get married and marriage is good. However, the unmarried man is only anxious about things of the Lord. He's concerned with pleasing God. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, all God's people said. Amen. <laughs> They're anxious about their wife. His interests are divided. Again, some of you are not anxious about your wife because you don't care about her enough. You don't care about yourself. That there's a healthy sense of concern or care that God expects to exist in loving relationships. That when my wife is out of sight, she's not out of mind. But I'm concerned. I care. My thoughts keep coming back. I'm paying attention. I'm curious. What's her experience like? So Paul says, yes, get married, marriage is good, marriage is, marriage is not a bad thing, um, but what that means is that your mind is preoccupied with pleasing your wife and not just preoccupied with pleasing the Lord. And so our interests are divided. That's just a reality. Sometimes people will say, oh, you're anxious about your wife. Maybe your wife's an idol and you should care about her less. I think that is stupid reasoning. I think Paul's saying it is fine to love people and to recognize that they go back and forth. And I think this is even getting to um, this next section right here. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, there's daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. Paul's talking about all his trials, all the times he's been beat down, all the times he's been betrayed, all the times that things have gone bad for him. And he says, and not only that, kind of the cherry on top is my chronic anxiety for my love of the church. The church is in bad shape. I love the church. I want the church to be doing better. Again, is Paul, did Paul like not read his own words in Philippians 4? Hey, Paul, do not be anxious. But I think Paul's showing us a deeper understanding here that Paul cares about the church and so he's concerned about it. I know a lot of people who have a hard time engaging in the local church because they see such a poor witness in the global church. Hypocrisy all over the place. And I understand that. It can be hard to see Christians on the news and to have to think this person's my brother in Christ. (laughs) It's not bad to be anxious for the state of the church in the world. Paul had it, we have it. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. If we're gonna imitate Paul, part of that comes with being concerned to the point of maybe being too concerned for the state of the church. And here's even in this letter in Philippians, in Philippians 2, um, Paul says this. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely anxious for your welfare. I am the more eager to send him that I may be less anxious. So here's Paul saying, I'm anxious about you people. I'm gonna send Timothy so he can be anxious instead of me. This is, this is what I would call leadership 101. It's delegation of anxiety, right? <laughs> I, you know, I would even say that in, if you're a leader of things, until you've actually delegated the anxiety, you haven't really delegated it. So, and even then, can you go, go back to that verse? I think it's key that sometimes people will say things like, um, I'm sending Timothy to help you because he will be anxious for you. What makes Timothy a good shepherd, a good leader, a good person I'm sending you? The fact that he is anxious makes him a good person to send. Paul says, I'm anxious. I can't be anxious about everything. 
So I'm be anxious about some things. This is Paul preserving his mental health. I mean, one of the things that happens in our current cultural moment is there's so much information that people are, have blogs about everything and we used to delegate our anxiety about our health to our doctors. Now we read 900 blogs about it and take it into our own hands. We used to delegate our car working to mechanics but now we're in this do-it-yourself thing and I have to know how to do, I have to be a mechanic and I have to be an expert in health and I gotta read all the research on the, this and I, and I used to just kind of say, there's the public school, now there's like 900 schools I could send my kids to, and so there's this constant, we don't, we absorb all the anxiety because there's all these plates we're spinning all at the same time, and so Paul here I think models for us one way of managing our anxiety is to delegate it to someone else, saying, you know, people will ask me sometimes, what are you gonna do for your kid when he's born about this and this, and I said, well, I can only worry about so many things, and so I'm just gonna do what the doctor tells me, and they go, how could you? I was like, well, I'm trying not to go crazy, that's what I'm trying to do. So I think about this, this, this anxiety, and so then Paul comes here. I'm give, sending you Timothy, even, even in this sense, is Paul trusting God or is Paul trusting Timothy? Yes. He's trusting them both. He's, he's receiving and sending Timothy as the enactment of God's providence to the Philippians. That it's one thing to trust Timothy and just trust him as he is himself, but it's nothing to receive and send Timothy as an agent of God's providence to this church. So some of you, um, your source of comfort and your source of being okay and maybe even your source of capacity to go on living life is because of this other person or maybe because of this pill or maybe because of this routine or maybe because of this other thing. But you, you, this thing is something that gives you a source of stability and connection. And it'd be a mistake, therefore, to wipe that away and say it doesn't matter. Rather, what you wanna do is instead of just trusting that, trust that as a measure and an instrument of God's providence. Some of you I know that psychiatric medication is keeping you alive. Receive it as God's providence, not as a thing in and of itself. So here's kind of summarizing what I've just kind of looked at Paul's view. Like, so I would say, here are four easy steps to eliminating all anxiety, all right? So based on what Paul just said, step one is love nobody. <laughs> if you battle anxiety, First, care about nobody, not even yourself, and you won't worry about anybody. Second thing is love nothing. You care about your job, you care about being employed, you care about your house, you care about your car. Stop it, don't care about it, don't think about it, think about nothing else. Step three, ignore God's presence in word. See, here's kind of, I think this is what Kierkegaard was getting at in the beginning when he said, um, anxiety keeps us alive is that I am a sinner and you are a sinner. And there's indwelling sin in our hearts and in our minds. And when I pay attention to God, I feel and sense the gap. And when I read scripture, I'm convicted of sin. And there's this dissonance, this fatherly displeasure, and it causes me to be anxious. And if you don't want to feel that, just pretend you're an atheist and ignore God's word. And fourth, last one, disassociate with your body. You can do this by um, getting a medical marijuana card or watching Netflix or drinking all day long. There's a lot of ways you can disassociate with your body. But, but anxiety is fundamentally embodied. It's in, our, it's in our bodies. This morning, I was unusually anxious about preaching. I think that was part of God's 
gift to me to say you're going to preach on anxiety. And I, and I felt that my heart rate was elevated unusually. I felt a little bit jittery. My palms were sweating. Um, I, I felt it in my chest. There's a tightness, a sense of nervousness, um, a, a sense of impending, what are they going to blank? And so I, you know, I'm, I'm, I wanted to dissociate with my body, so I wanted to go on Instagram and just scroll through things and be somewhere else besides present. So if you write those down, that's the best way to eliminate all anxiety, and you'll be, you'll be good to go. Um, but that's actually not what I think this text teaches. So, um, uh, so here's, here's what I'm actually saying. Here's what, instead, what, here's, what saying. here's what I think we should be doing with our anxiety. Rather than trying to escape or eliminate or suppress anxiety, I want us to think of it, uh, of harness it. I mean, when your check engine light comes on in your car, you take it and you pull the code and you have someone read the code because and then you have them interpret the code because you don't know anything, and that's kind of how, how it works. And so when I notice that I'm anxious, what do I do with it? And so I'm gonna see kind of five steps here that I think the scriptures teach us about how to deal with anxiety. Some of them are in this text and some of them are elsewhere. So what to do with anxiety? Number one is gonna be notice and name your anxiety. This presupposes a baseline level of self-awareness. Am I anxious? Am I feeling anxious? What happens a lot of the times is we get anxious, we don't notice it, we don't name it, and then we just react. And we just end up being bitey and short and mean and fidgety and reactive, and we go about doing all these um, unhelpful things. And we have this relational tension. That's what I think is going on here. Iodia and Sintiki, they're, they, maybe they're not cl- noticing and naming that they're anxious. They just kind of end up being bitey. One of the reasons we do this, I think, is because we've been taught to hate our emotions and we've taught that the body's not good, and so we feel shame for feeling anxiety. We think that all anxiety means that I'm not trusting God or something like that, so we say, I shouldn't feel that, and we shame our anxiety, and then we have this like secondary emotion about our emotion, and we end up just kind of suppressing ourselves, and we'll somehow end up squirting that out on people and being reactive and mean, or we will disassociate. Sometimes I think this is the case for a lot of you, a lot of us as a church, is you've cared a lot about a lot of people and you keep getting hurt and you keep getting pushed away and you keep getting shut down and it's been difficult and it's been hard and over time you have learned to not care because it hurts too much. Sometimes our childhood traumatic wounds are being dismissed Trauma we experience later in life and childhood are all things that can help us. Are, we develop a callus over our heart because in order to go on surviving, we need to just not feel things for a while. Notice the name of your anxiety. Don't judge it. Name it. Call it what it is. The second thing we do is we interrogate That's our anxiety. We ask questions of it. That might be <coughs> too negative a term, interrogation. So you're like FBI, you know, like... Where were you on? But, I, but it's, you approach it with curiosity. Why am I anxious? I talked to a handful of people who really battle anxiety this week, and one of the things they said, um, one of my friends in particular, I, was, I read this text with her, and I talked to her about how this text has been used to hurt her. She has this like chronic, diagnosed anxiety symptom. Do not be anxious about anything. And what happens is she comes to church, she has anxiety, and people quote this verse at her. And mostly what this verse is used to do is to say, I don't want to connect with you and what you're dealing with. Go get better and then come back to me when you're better. (laughs) It's dismissive, it pushes people away, and then it doesn't actually invite people near. And I asked her, if you were going to teach this text, what was the main thing you'd want people to get across? And she said, I'd want people 
cannot fill in the blanks for other people on their anxiety. To not assume you're anxious. Maybe have you considered stopping that? Have you, have you thought about not being anxious? Instead, saying like, tell me about your anxiety. What's going on there? What are you fearful of? What are you afraid of? I'm also afraid of that. I haven't been afraid of that. What's it like? But we begin by doing this with ourselves. This is when I think we experience people, like if you ever like notice someone, you're like, that's an anxious person or that is a non-anxious person. I don't think it's a matter. I mean, some people who are not anxious, it's because they just callous their heart and they feel nothing. But some people, um, they're not anxious because they're able to do this. They have a healthy internal process. They notice their anxiety, they ask questions of it. And this is what we see happening is we approach our curiosity with curiosity, we approach our anxiety with curiosity and ask. And so this is what the psalmist actually teaches us. Um, David writes this, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? This morning, even I've been prepping to teach, I'm like, why am I anxious? Do I want them to like me? You know, Matt Fogel's visiting, what's he gonna think? You know, I'm teaching at my old church next week. Am I like nervous about that? I haven't been back in a long time. Is it because I was on vacation? Do I feel like my mind, like, and so I'm asking, what am I anxious about? What am I, what am, and I try to name it and process through it. And sometimes just saying things out loud um, gives you power. And then, so then the third thing you do is you do this, you invite God to be near to it. Invite God to be near to your anxiety. I think this is what's going on in verse five. Let your flexibility, your reasonless be known to everyone. The Lord is close, he's here. Do not be anxious about anything. Even that text, do not be anxious. Don't <coughs> remain anxious. Don't make peace with your anxiety. Don't, don't make a bed in anxiety and just say, this is just the way it is. Don't just say, I'm anxious, period. This is the way it is from now on. Rather, um, in the midst of your anxiety, while being anxious, don't just put a period after anxiety, but take your anxiety and pray and ask and give thanks and tell God what you want. Let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which transpass understanding will guard your hearts and minds gracious. We invite God to be near to our anxiety. My wife doing these swim lessons. You know, there's all these kids besides one with terrible fear of the water and they're just going crazy, going crazy. And one of my good friends, his daughter's in the class and she, I think, is three years old and she's, you know, shaking, scared of the water. You know, you open the pool gate, she goes ballistic. Um, you put her toes in, she goes ballistic. She's just squealing, squealing, squealing. And you know, my wife takes her by the hand and is dragging her through the water, teaching her how to do her scoopers and her kickers. You know? And so I'm pretty much qualified at this point. I watched a couple of lessons, <laughs> scoopers and kickers. You know? And they're going through the water. And this little girl keeps telling my wife, I got you, I got you, I got you, I got you. And I asked my buddy, like, why did she say that? And he says, well, when we take her into the water, that's what I tell her. I got you, I got you, I got you, I got you, I got you. And so she's just repeating, oh, when we're nervous, we say, I got you, I got you, I got you. She's not understanding, you got me, you got me, you got me. She's going, I got you, I got you, I got you. And so, and so but this is, how, this is how good fathers react when their children are afraid. I got you, I got you, I got you, I got you. I think we think that God's gonna say something like, fear not, stupid. I've been right here the whole time, dummy. I thought you would have more faith by now, loser. But consistently, the pattern in scripture is that when people are afraid or anxious, God reassures and shows up and says, I got you. It's fear not, for I'm with you. 
It's be not anxious. I'm close by. I'm right at hand. And so we pray. We invite God to be near anxiety. Paul Miller said it like this. He said, instead of fighting anxiety, we can use it as a springboard to bending our hearts to God. Instead of trying to suppress anxiety, manage it or smother it with pleasure, we can turn our anxiety towards God. When we do that, we'll discover that we've slipped into continuous praying. That what if we reinterpreted our anxiety and our nervousness as actually God inviting us to pray? I care about this, I care about this, I care about this. God, I want you to care. God, I want you to move. That sometimes the, the, the gift of anxiety can be the gift of a good prayer life. That if one thing you learn from your anxiety is that God cares about what you care about, if one thing you learn from your anxiety is you develop a meaningful prayer life and intimacy with the Father, God says, that's anxiety well spent. So rather than suppressing it or disassociating, we, we bring their request to the Father and he says, I'm with you, I hear what you hear, I see what you see. And here's the, the, the next one, is look for how God is at work in the present. So anxiety is fearful anticipation of the future, but what Paul calls us to hear is actually to look to the present when we're anxious. Finally, brothers, verse eight, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is the same thing that Jesus does in Matthew five when he says, you're anxious, look at the birds. Look how they're provided for. You're anxious, look at the good things because every good and perfect thing comes down from the Father who is right now present to us by his grace. And so actually rooting ourselves in the present and paying attention to what's going on in the here and now is one of the ways that God helps us make sense of our fear of the future. That if God is with me here in the now and I can see evidence of his grace all around me, then I will be able to do the same thing in the future in the midst of that thing that I'm afraid about. I've heard different, um, you know, Vicky, who's on staff, and Heidi, who uh, helps with counseling, they talk about teaching people to grace hunt. You go looking for grace, evidence of grace. Where are you seeing God at work? Where are you seeing God at work? And teaching ourselves to answer that question. You know, in Philippians 2, Paul says, stop complaining, because most of us look for things to complain about. That's the main way we get attention, is by complaining. I think most of us aren't happy unless we have something to complain about. But Paul says instead, instead of looking for things to complain about, look for evidence of God's grace at work all among us. Rooting ourselves in the present, being connected to what God's doing in the here and now. This is where kind of the, the embodied nature, you know, people talk about how we're psychosomatic wholes. Psycho meaning soul, somatic meaning body, that our body and our mind go together. And so when we're super anxious and fidgety and our palms are sweating and hard, this is why therapists will teach people to do breathing exercises to, to help us come back to the here and now that I can breathe, I can think. Some therapists will even say to have people hold a melting piece of ice in their hand just so they can have something to connect us to the here and now because the future is so daunting. But if I can be connected to here and then I can notice how God's at work around me, I can be rooted in God's providential grace here that'll help me give confidence for the future. And here's the last one, is repeat indefinitely in God's presence. The promise in this text comes in verse nine. What you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things. This is not something you're gonna get good at right away, but actually self-regulating, having a healthy internal process is something that we um, learn over time. But he says, and the God of peace will be with you. I think we wish that verse said, and then you won't have any more anxiety. (laughs) But what it says is, and the God of peace will be with you. Another one of the people I talked to the last couple weeks about anxiety um, brought up Psalm 23, 
in the presence of my enemies, you prepare a feast. Not just in the greener pastures, not just in the quiet waters, but in the presence of my enemies, you're with me preparing a feast. That we are, Paul is soberly looking forward to the pain coming, the, the forecoming persecution, the suffering that's part of the gift with grace. And he says, when you learn to connect with God in the midst of this, the God of peace will be with you guarding your heart and your mind. See, sometimes we see people who are anxious and we say, you've clearly not done this because then you wouldn't be anxious, but that's actually not the case. God will be with us. And just like the little kid in the water, I got you, I got you, I got you. And this is how our father operates. That from the very beginning, when Adam was anxious, because of his sin, God moved towards him. He says, Adam, where are you? When Abraham was anxious because he had to leave his hometown, God put him to sleep and reminded him of his unconditional covenant. When Abraham was anxious about becoming a father and being old, God provided a way and reassured him and said, look at the stars in the sky. You have to trust me in the midst of this. When David was anxious, fleeing his son who was going to kill him, God met him in the wilderness and called him the man after his own heart. When Jesus was anxious in the garden, looking forward with great sobriety to the pain that was going to come. God the Father said, this is my will, my will will be done. And when it looked like the Father had forsaken Jesus on the cross, the Father moved towards him and rose him from the dead. And so when you are anxious and you invite God to be near, he will not shame you, but he will move towards you saying, I got you, I'm with you, you can trust me. And so with the Philippians, we can look forward to the future and not just say things will be fine, because they might not be fine. And not just say everything will work out, because it might not. But we can look forward to the future and say, we might be murdered, we might be persecuted, we might be abandoned, we might be stepped on, we might be shamed, we might get more anxious, we might have physical difficulty, we might get cancer, we might get a cold, we might have allergies, we might lose an arm. But in the midst of it all, the Lord is at hand. And so rather than saying, will we have faith or will we have anxiety, we can say, will we take our anxiety to the Lord? Because that is the step of faith. To say, here's where I am, will you be with me here? Because the Father always answers yes to that question. Let's pray. Can I pray for people in this room who have been dealing with um, clinical level anxiety. I pray that you would help them receive psychiatric and therapeutic care as providence. I pray for folks in this room who almost never have any anxiety, that you'd help them care more. I pray for people who um, have been shaming themselves because of their experience of nervousness or fear or anxiety, that rather than shame, that we would turn those emotions and those feelings into prayer, that we'd see you as being close to us. God, pray for us as Redemption Gateway that we'd be an emotionally healthy place, that we'd handle our anxiety well, that we'd use it, we wouldn't avoid it, that our reasonableness would be known to all people. In the name of your son, we pray, amen. Mm-hmm.